This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I am Anna Obererlacher, your host of this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Stefan Resch about his new book, Stefan Zweig und der Europa-Gedanke. Stefan Resch currently holds a position as a senior lecturer of German studies at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Stefan Resch, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, Stefan, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. So, as you said, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland. I started working there in 2005 after finishing my PhD, which I also did at the University of Auckland. So, I, my parents uh, moved to New Zealand in 1997. Uh, That was also when I started university, uh, a conjoint degree in business and in arts, literature. And after finishing my master's degree, I I decided that literature would be the the way to go for me. So I enrolled in a PhD program in German studies, which I mostly did in, um, in Auckland, but also part of it in Kassel, Germany. And I was lucky enough to, to get a post uh, upon finishing 2005. Um, my PhD was actually on a completely different topic, which was on uh, the role of uh, drugs in German literature, i.e. how uh, writers translated the drug experience into literature, in which I published a, a monograph and then a anthology of, of German texts Uh, dealing with the drug experience. And then I think it was in 2009 or 10, I started to get interested in the works of Stefan Zweig, who had read a lot when I was was younger at school in Germany. And from then on, um, I've been writing about Zweig, about the uh, notion of Europe, about uh, the idea of pacifism and what Zweig uh, How I engage with those thoughts. Okay, thank you. That's very exciting. And so um, you um, wrote about Zweig a lot before. And then how uh, did you come to write Stefan Zweig und der Europa-Gedanke, the monography we now have here? Well, it started out as a single paper that I presented at a conference in Berlin on Stefan Zweig 
and Richard Kudenhover Kalergi, who um, is the founder of the Pan European Union in the 1920s, and, and I found uh, some letters that were exchanged between the two, uh, which I thought was, was really exciting. I thought that there should be a connection between them, given that they were both such proponents of a united Europe. And so after giving that paper, publishing the article, um, I continued to research in the same direction. And, and after a while, I, I had compiled so much material that I thought I might as well turn this into a monograph. Yeah, well, let's go right into the book now. Um, so far, researchers and contemporaries of Stefan Zweig have claimed and also criticized that Stefan Zweig was apolitical. In your book, you refute that and state that Zweig is at least an ambivalent character. Can you explain that a bit further? Well, yes, he's he's certainly not openly political. Uh, he's not a political activist at all. But uh, that doesn't mean that he did not have a political opinion, that he was not involved in thinking about politics and writing about politics in his literature, be it in a less overt form. So... When it comes to ambivalence that you mentioned, uh, a good example would probably be Zweig's position in, in World War One. So uh, Zweig, when the war broke out, as, as many writers of the time, was, um, let's say, quite <laughs> favorably disposed to uh, what, what was happening. He, he was quite patriotic at the time, and he expressed it in, in, in a few articles about August to, to December 1914, which uh, are surprisingly patriotic, even uh, nationalistic for, for a writer who's so known to be a pacifist. And th this is something that unchanged over the following two years. He read a lot. He read in the works of Tolstoy. He had uh, discussions with Romain Roland, his, his great friend and um, uh, sort of father figure, we could almost say. And that started to change his, his political position. It, or let's say it started to form a political position where Initially, there was only an aesthetic position, certainly before World War I, Zweig did not really reflect much about politics because he never had to deal with it. And it was only then that we can see sort of a emerging awareness of uh, the political sphere with Zweig. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, your book is divided into six chapters. Um, over the course of these chapters, you correlate with the, the certain time periods between the early 20th century and the developments in the 1930s. You shine a light on these uh, alterations you already mentioned of Stefan Zweig's approach towards politics, the, uh, his dedication to the European idea, pacifism and more. Um, so what were, when we look at chapter one, what were the preliminary considerations 
Well, uh, for the preliminary considerations, I, I wanted uh, to find out what has been written about Zweig when it comes to uh, uh, his thoughts on Europe, pacifism. I wanted to know what the uh, European visions existed uh, around that time when uh, Zweig was a young person. Was there an idea of, for, for United Europe? This was pre uh, League of Nations, pre-European Union, of course. Um, so that was that was quite central for me. And surprisingly enough, um, for a writer who is always associated with uh, Europe and pacifism there, uh, there were a few PhD theses uh, not published at, at that point, uh, a small number of articles, but, um, yeah, surprisingly... Uh, not uh, a lot less than expected. Yeah. Um, and in your second uh, chapter, you start with the way to Europe auf dem Weg noch nach Europa. The chapter is titled. And you detect a certain developments of Zweig's worldview, especially in his attitude towards Europe. How was that shaped? Well, Zweig came from a very European family, as it were. His, his mother is Italian, um, his father from Bohemia, and they, they were a well-off family. Their parents owned a textile mill, and they, they spoke several languages at home. As far as I remember, French, Italian, German was spoken. Uh, they traveled widely. So in a way, Europe was always taken for granted. And uh, Zweig started to read very early on uh, the the French symbolist writers. He started to travel by himself through, uh, through Europe first and then uh, larger trips throughout the world, through India, the United States, uh, and, and all of that shaped his perception of, of um, being not only Austrian, but being really a citizen of Europe and, and the world. So that was something that was pretty much taken for granted from the beginning. In that process, um, certain people were of vast importance to Stefan Zweig, like Hippolyt Ten or Emil Verheeren. Um, can you tell us a bit about, about these relationships? Right. Uh, the really uh, influential figure around that time would have been Emil Verheeren. So for Zweig, um, there were always important father figures in his life that he looked up to uh, different stages. So the first uh, really important one was Emil Verhaaren, uh, who he met when he was only about 20 years old. Uh, so the, the Belgian writer was so important for him because he, he represented a, a writing style that he hadn't encountered until then. It was a very positive, affirmative writing style that, that saw the, uh, that recognized the changes that were happening in, in Europe around that time. And, affirmed and saw them as something um, to be embraced. And that's something that, that really um, 
comes through in Zweig's writing before World War One. This very enthusiastic uh, style of of writing. He used a lot of adjectives, and the way he describes things is, is he's he's really glowing in his passion for them. And that is something uh, interestingly that then also. Um, influences his attitude when World War One breaks out because he interprets it as just something that is um, a product of of change, of social change. And first, in the first instance, he thinks, well, maybe that's something that's necessary. It's something that is going to bring about some something positive. And therefore, he affirms the war. That's in this aesthetic of Verherren. And it takes him a good two years to realize that, well, this is really an aesthetic worldview that he holds, but it has, uh, it is very problematic, actually. Yeah, you mentioned uh, World War One and his um, first, that he was um, uh, enthusiastic at the beginning about um, the events and that uh, turned into... Um, into uh, skepticism towards propaganda and and uh, the mechanisms of power. Can you uh, go a bit into detail what you describe in um, chapter three? Initially, the, the, the letters uh, that he exchanges with Romain Roland are really, really interesting in that respect because he tries to convince Roland, who is in Switzerland at that point, and who has access to uh, a wide range of newspapers, French, Swiss, German, Austrian, um, tries to convince him that um, Germany, who is really glowing for, that's obviously the, the uh, alliance partner, Austria, um, is that they did not commit any atrocities, that uh, what the Germans did in Belgium was entirely... Uh, unproblematic. Uh, and Roland, who is much better informed than him, tries to tell him, well, maybe you're just a victim of uh, your local propaganda machine and try to think a little bit outside the square. And uh, he initially refutes that and uh, Sort of, uh, he he's quite convinced that uh, Austria and, and Germany are uh, on the morally right side. But slowly, uh, the longer that that exchange of letters goes with Roland, the more he uh, starts to question himself. He starts to question whether the uh, what he reads in the newspaper is really true, and then as he uh, exchanges letters with, with other friends. Uh, yes, you can see uh, almost month by month how his attitude changes. Mm -hmm. And he also becomes interested in the concept of pacifism. And there are also very important figures uh, for him or in important uh, people that shaped his, uh, his attitude. Can you explain that a bit further? Yes, so there's there's a number of people who were 
very influential for him. There's uh, uh, Leo Tolstoy, great uh, pacifist, um, who he read extensively around that time. And he was interested in that, that concept of this uh, religious or anarchist pacifism that Tolstoy proposed. Um, but then there was also Alfred Fried, who uh, by that time was already a Nobel Peace Laureate. And when Zweig moved to Switzerland in 1917, so uh, Zweig was always very uh, concerned that he would be called to frontline service. He was working in the war archives in Vienna and let's say through good connections he managed to get a relatively comfortable job there during the war and he was concerned as the war drew on as uh, the losses on the austrian german side were became higher that he would have to uh, go into the trenches and so in a very smart move it's like managed to um become a correspondent for the Neue Freie Presse, the big, uh, important Viennese newspaper at the time, um, as a war correspondent in, in Switzerland, which um, also meant quite conveniently that uh, the Austrian authorities did not have any access to him if they did want him to go to the front line. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. uh, and this is where uh, he, he meets Alfred Fried. Uh, starts to exchange letters with him. And this uh, correspondence is really very interesting because we have two eminent pacifists of the first half of the 20th century um, exchanging their ideas on what they believe is important in, a, in a, securing future peace in Europe. But there you can already see that even though they're both pacifists, their approach is uh, quite different. So with uh, Alfred, uh, Alfred Fried, um, Fried is uh, very much interested in a economic and political cooperation between the European countries. And he's convinced that to make peace, this has to be done through uh, legal agreements or trade agreements through a binding political agreements through something like the uh, League of Nations, which would compel states to, to work together. Uh, for Zweig, uh, Zweig was never quite that interested in concrete political action. So for him, uh, peace was more um, focusing on trying to prevent more human suffering. So when uh, he there was an article he wrote in 1918, which he uh, stated that after four years of people dying, millions of, of people being dead, uh, it can't be ideology that, that rules us. It has to be uh, compassion. It has to be the single... Uh, human fate that should compel us to, to stop the war. So along those lines, their uh, correspondence uh, must be read as well. So there were 
two people wanting the same uh, thing essentially, but going about it in, in very different manners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, after World War One, Zweig's um, position has changed, you write. His, his um, view on politics, on politicians, on power has changed and he also develops a certain um, view on morale and power that gets more important for his paradigm. What did you find out about this period of time, the 1920s? Right. Zweig, especially after World War I, grew very suspicious of politics. Uh, He was quite disappointed about the outcome of the Versailles Treaty. Uh, He saw that nationalist forces gathered strength very, very quickly after 1919, 1920. And for him, politics was not the way out of the crisis. And he had several offers to be part of political groups, for example, Henri Babus, uh, who um, invited him to become part of the uh, Claté group. So Claté um, was a novel by Henri Babus, which Zweig very much admired. And initially it looked like Claté would be a, a, a group that would bring together um, eminent um, scholars, intellectuals, uh, in order to talk about the uh, future of, of, of Europe. And Zweig initially quite quite liked the project, but it turned out over the coming months that Plate uh, uh, turned more and more into a um, communist uh, grouping and there were certain expectations for for members of Clarté, uh, of their political allegiances. And at that point, uh, Zweig was was quite determined to, to keep his distance because uh, that whether it's left or right, uh, whenever you get involved with politics, uh, there would be, would be compromises. You, you would no longer be free in your in your worldview, you would have to toe the party line. And therefore, as as a free intellectual being, uh, you'd be compromised. And he uh, resented that idea. And that's why in the 1920s, he really um, kept his distance. The same thing with uh, Richard Kudenhofer Kalergi's Pan-Europa movement. He was a great admirer of the idea. But Richard Kudenhofer Kalergi was a in Germany you would call Realpolitiker. So he knew that in order for his idea of uh, pan-Europe, which he envisioned a little bit like uh, a precursor of the European Union, a, a block of countries uh, with uh, economic exchange, with uh, a common legal framework, Richard Kudenhofer Kalergi knew that it would only happen if you uh, brought together people from all walks of life, from politics, from uh, the big industry, 
from the church. So, and that was again suspicious for Zweig because he saw how Hudenhofer Kalergi invited them to large congresses, which were quite theatrical in the in their makeup, uh, banners everywhere, and uh, a lot of advertising. And and Zweig's idea was really that. Uh, to fight for Europe should be done in a, in a very small circle of uh, intellectual people uh, who wouldn't make a big fuss, but through their intellectual contributions, through their books, uh, they would be able to, to lay the groundwork of, of, of European thought. And th that was his position in the 1920s, but of course, as we go on into the late 1920s and early 1930s when then nationalism, fascism starts to um, assert its presence quite aggressively, he starts to notice that this is not going to, to happen, that maybe uh, another position will need to be adopted. Mm -hmm. So, and he also turns um, his attention to other countries, other regions in the world, like North America, uh, especially the United States and uh, Russia or uh, Soviet Union. Um, how was the relationship to different societies, countries, and how did it shape his view on Europe? Yes, uh, his relationship with uh, the US and the Soviet Union is in many ways a of mirror on uh, his uh, being a European. Uh, his relationship with the US is, is quite complex. Uh, in many ways, it reflects that of uh, quite a few intellectuals of the 1920s that uh, he sees... Uh, mass production he sees uh, it he the, the, he admires the us in he's in new york when he, when he sees the sheer size of, of buildings of, of human endeavor when it comes to uh, uh, factories to the level of organization but at the same time he feels uh, that individualism is very much threatened and the same uh, happens as he as he visits the Soviet Union. Um, he very much admires the political organization. He ad admires that there is an alternative model of a society that uh, is just so different from the from the uh, capitalist model that's that's applied in Europe and and. States, but he also recognizes that, uh, of course, it is only stable because the individual is suppressed. And uh, during his travels, he he only makes a very short trip to the uh, to the Soviet Union in 1928 or 29. And his impression is: yes, uh, intellectuals are are not able to say what they want to say. And uh, the, the average person in the Soviet Union uh, is not able what, what they want to say. And uh, it's very much an ambivalent picture with uh, which he returns to Europe. 
Mm -hmm. So then in the 1930s, he has to and wants to turn his back, I say um, provocatively, uh, on Europe. Um, you take a look into Zweig saying goodbye to Europe. Um, the reader of the book is now in the 1930s, a time period that caused a broad discussion amongst the researchers on Zweig's political involvement and dedication to Europe. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the, his position was, of course, controversial because um, in the when Hitler came to power, uh, Zweig initially was uh, saw the Nazi Party in Germany as a, as a short-lived phenomenon. He thought, oh. Uh, as many of those um, political changes in the Weimar Republic, this will not last, and it will they will disappear within a few months, a couple of years maximum. And he did not really speak out openly against Nazi regime in uh, 1932, 33, 34. And uh, instead, he preferred his position of, well, he, he referred back to his position of being, as Roland called it, au-dessus de la, de la mêlée, uh, to be above the battle, that he did not want to become involved in politics. And he was criticized by that, uh, for that by uh, colleagues such as Klaus Mann, Josef Roth. And so it, it was not until 1934 when he started to really feel the pressure uh, that his house was searched in Salzburg and he felt the influence of right-wing groups also growing in Austria at that time. And this is when he um, decided to move to London first and then, of course, to Bath uh, later in the 19. 38. Then he starts to uh, to write Erasmus, which is uh, has been read by quite a few scholars as a, a self-referential work of the intellectual humanist who um, withdraws a little bit in the ivory tower. But, uh, and th there's a self-critical element in Erasmus where he says, yes, uh, Erasmus was right for doing that because intellectuals should not be involved in the political sphere. But at the same time, um, uh, maybe he trusted too much in the power of, of his books. Maybe he was only preaching to the converted. So there, there is an element of self-doubt already in uh, Erasmus. And that, of course, becomes... Uh, stronger as as we move on in the 1930s when it comes to Castelio uh, gegen Calvin. Uh, Castelio is a much more gutsy figure who um, does not shy away from confrontation with, with those in power. And of, of course, there's very obvious parallels with uh, uh, Calvin's um, with, autocratic and quite brutal rule of Geneva at the time. And 
Castelio um, trying to to rebel against him at his uh, at his peril and um, so yeah, he, uh, Spike once wrote in a letter to Josef Roth that Castelio is the person who he would have liked to have been. Erasmus is pretty much the person that he identifies with and uh, Castelio would have been the person he would have liked to be and uh, i.e. probably a little bit more outspoken, a little bit more gutsy about getting involved in politics. Mm -hmm. um, in your closing chapter, you mentioned that uh, Zweig's political writings on Europe and his pacifism did not just play a minor role in his oeuvre, much more it was an integral part of his literary self-image. Can you explain that? Yeah, certainly, uh, from the time of the First World War, um, this is a theme that goes right through his works until um, pretty much uh, his last word, Schachnovelle. So we have Jeremias, which has very strong pacifist undertones, and then his writings of the 20s, there, there's always a sort of moral element in which he sees himself as you know, someone proposing a, a moral position that they're different positions, uh, but always with a view to uh, humanist, uh, pro-European cosmopolitan set of values. And you already mentioned letters and essays, uh, his journalistic work. How important was it for the development of Zweig's world view that he expressed himself through so many different channels? Can you say that mm -hmm. um, he maybe, um, did he somehow read the world by writing Uh, yeah, I think you can say that. Uh, it's something that is very much overlooked, I would say, in, in Zweig's scholarship. So a lot of work has been done on his novellas, on his biographies, uh, of course, on the world of yesterday, his autobiography. But uh, he, he was a very prolific writer of uh, essays, of, of letters. And those documents really uh, help us to read the other part of the, this much better known part of his works uh, in a different light because um, Zweig published, I would say, on average, two, three, four letter um, essays on political affairs every year from 1914 onwards, right until 1942, when he committed suicide. And they, they shine a really important light on uh, him as a person, his uh, understanding of the society he lived in, his understanding as a, uh, what it means to be a writer, what are the moral uh, duties of 
being a writer in exile, being a Jewish writer in exile. Um, so for me, it, it has been an incredible journey to, to read through those and put them into context. And I'm sure it's it's very exciting for the reader of your book uh, to uh, get on this journey and uh, read about this um, impressive and, and exciting character of Stefan Zweig. Would you like to add anything uh, to our conversation? Uh, well, I, I, I can just recommend to, to anyone to... Uh, re read Zweig. Uh, we tend to uh, dismiss him as uh, we say in, in German Schullektüre, so a, a reader that you read in school for his readability of Schachnovelle or Sternstunden der Menschheit, uh, which are great books, but uh, there is uh, just so much uh, interesting work that has hardly been covered by literary criticism so far. Um, I'm currently uh, working on a critical edition of Zweig's Ungeduldes Herzens or Beware of Pity in English. So at the uh, Marbach Literary Archives, there's the whole set of, of manuscripts for that novel. And uh, that's, a, that's a really, really exciting uh, project looking how um, Zweig conceived a novel, how, how it got changed in the process, uh, how it was uh, reviewed in 1938 and 39 by uh, contemporary criticism. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's highly exciting. And uh, will you uh, continue to write and research on um, Stefan Zweig in the future? Uh, I, I certainly hope so. So this uh, latest project on Beware of Pity is a, a long-term project and uh, which will keep me busy probably until 2020 or 2021. Uh, so until that time, uh, I'll certainly be keeping in touch with Zweig. Yeah, we're excited about that. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Stefan, Thank you very much for your time and telling us about your new book. Um, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, pleasure. It's been great. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, so this was uh, a new episode of New Books in German Studies with uh, Stefan Resch on his new book Stefan Zweig und der Europa-Gedanke. Thanks for listening and goodbye.